Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. And I'm not joined this time by my co-host, Deafening Tim. Um, <laughs> on a break just now, studying up why Omega is better than Rolex. But I am joined by a very special guest. Someone who I've uh, recently uh, got into contact with, who I didn't know of previously, but I'd heard of previously, and that is Rob from Geneva Blue. Do you want to say hello, Rob? Hi. Yeah, how are you going? Um, um, want to give a little intro about yourself, and then we can um, take yeah, it from just there. Did... harass you with questions. Sure, a very quick one. Um... I'm, I'm well. I, I'm a qualified watchmaker. I, I could almost say I'm an ex-watchmaker because I don't spend much time at the bench anymore. Um, I spent the best part of 20 years in Switzerland, and I did watchmaker training over there. Uh, worked for a couple of big brands, and uh, four years ago I decided to come back to with my family to Australia. We chose Perth for climate reasons and a few other things. Um, so now I'm back here, and I, yeah, the little Geneva Blue. That, um, is that I have now is just bringing in a few independent brands, basically um, doing a bit of pre-owned uh, watch straps, all sorts of stuff. So that's me, really. Okay, in a that's good. You didn't you didn't waffle on like you were you were scared you're going to. So that's that's good. Oh, I can get waffle on. You get the waffling tower. Oh, okay, forgot to do. See, because Anthony's not here, there's just zero structure. It's a bit like when you go on a holiday for the first time without your parents and you just have mm -hmm. beer all the time for breakfast. So um, <laughs> I'm going to do a, a drink check. I'm drinking my second. I mean, it's almost a pint. I know you don't have pints in this country. You've got kind of something short of a pint. I'm on my almost second pint of gin and tonic. What are you drinking, Rob? I've got an acai dry, just a beer, a, a Japanese beer, which was sort of my go-to for, for beer-wise. Um yeah, just to get me a little bit lubricated. It's not quite as late over here in Perth as it is your side of the country. So um, after twelve, no excuses. <laughs> it's and what's uh, what watch have you got on? I'm wearing a um, an old Tudor Chrono. Well, I'll say old. It's not that old. It's only 20, 20 years old. Um, a Tudor Chrono. It's the one after the big block. So it looks very similar to the big block. It's a seven nine two eight zero, I think. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's sort of it's a reverse panda, you know, black dial white. Are you saying you didn't know any reference numbers? That's it. That's it for just reference so, numbers. That's the only one I know. Just for the listeners, before <laughs> before we started, Rob saying, okay, just so you know, I'm not good with reference numbers, and then he hits out a reference number straight away. Um, I I don't even have a watch on, but I want to keep it keep it real. I had a watch on earlier. I tried to regulate it didn't go too well so i'm just leaving it to so the side regulator that doesn't that's a bit ironic really yeah yeah I'm, i'll get there i'll get I'll, I'll fix it tomorrow um just a, a bit of kind of background about how i got to know rob i had heard of rob when i got into the watch industry there's i don't want to say you don't hear many many stories of people in the industry but there was a few people that i heard of in the watch industry that uh, someone who we both know, who shall remain nameless, told me that I would like. They said, you'd really like Rob and you'd really like 
Peter Borghouse is the managing director of Oris Australia. And I met Peter Borghouse, first of all, and I was kind of blown blown away by what he was what he was like from from the uh the kind of the watch industry you, uh, people are normally kind of all the one way uh, if that's a, a good way to say it and peter Borghaus was like something totally different so once it's i met quite, him it's quite against the grind peter yeah. yeah very much and i loved that so once i met him i was like ah oh, i definitely need to meet this rob guy now um <laughs> and then you got in contact with me and yeah we had a, a good old chat a good old chat on on the phone and then I convinced him to come on, come on the podcast. Um, he I'd watched a couple kicking of your, and screaming. Really, yeah, watched a couple of your videos on um, on on Instagram, which not Instagram, sorry, uh, YouTube, which people should definitely go and check out. The production values are very low, but I think there's great. Uh, there's some substance <laughs> well, there. Very, um, very much so, I guess. So uh, yeah, I'd tell people to go and check check that out. Um, including there's one video you did where you talk about the first watch you got, which you got from your your granny. So I guess do you want yeah. to tell us about your kind of start in watches and how you got into them? And yeah, um, well that would have been when I was 12 um, in the or oh, that I don't know um, early 80s, I suppose. Um, yeah, but my grandmother had this tradition of giving all her grandkids uh, a watch when they were 12 years old. I don't know why 12, um, you know, finishing primary school, going to the big, big school and stuff. And my brother, a couple of years before, had got a citizen. Um, in country New South Wales, where I was, citizen and Casio brands like that were already pretty prevalent. They, uh, they were pretty much everywhere. They were good value for money. Um, and they're still, you still see that in, in a lot of country areas. For some reason, they have a good foothold there, citizen. And so we got basic time-only watches. They were nothing special, you know, quite small boys' size, you'd call them these days. Um, and my brother had one. Um, my poor grandmother, she had to give up after a while because she had ended up having a lot of grandkids. Um, and, and it's got too expensive, I'd imagine. But um, my brother got a black dial one with white white numbers, and uh, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. But then mine came around, and mine ended up being a, a really a nice aqua blue color, beautiful blue dial. Um, and I, I loved it from the first second I opened the box, basically, and I, I've kept it. And miraculously, I've still got it um, after all the moves and all over being all over the place. And so that really got me going, I guess, on watches. And I remember, remember after that, even um, you know, cutting out watches out of the out of magazines and actually taking them on my wrist to see, you know, see what they looked like. And this was way yeah, before I remember that. virtual. Yeah, yeah, you, you'd be there. Um, and then I guess I, and I mentioned in that when I, I think I mentioned on YouTube thing, I, that wasn't the first watch I had. I had a some sort of Casio um, you know, musical alarm watch, which I thought was the bee's knees at the time. My little brother and I had one each of those. Um, they played the Yellow Rose of Texas. I remember that as a, as a unique feature. Um, and it probably drowned or got end up ended up in the bottom of a swimming pool or a dam or something. I don't, I don't know where it is, but so that was I had that probably a year before. And I uh, got me keen on watches and my citizen, I really got me on the track and I guess I went through youth, um, teenager stuff. I, I, my dad actually gave me a watch, I think when I was about 17 or 18, uh, which was another citizen, probably from the same dealer. Um, and it was an Anna Digitemp, 
and it had the temperature readout uh, and a little analog analog clock face plus a temperature sensor. And that so was did really, it just really tell cool. you the temperature of your wrist, or did it actually? Did uh, it it actually was supposed work? to be ambient. It was supposed yeah. to be ambient, but of course it took the temperature of your wrist off, and you had to take it off for a few minutes, ten minutes, for it to be really accurate. But that was pretty cool. I was the coolest kid in school with that, um, basically. And I, I, I remember. Sorry, I was just going to say. I remember I on your on your video thing when you were talking mm. about the the watch your granny got you, and mm. you tell a bit about when you you opened up the watch to see what was inside is that the same same oh, yes. one that i'm thinking of that's the one yeah yeah and when i was a yeah in my late teens like oh, i was a teenager i guess um i wanted to see how it worked so i i unscrewed the back probably really severely scratching the back of the watch uh, i don't know how i got it open with the screwdriver or something just hammering in one direction um took the and i tried to pry the movement out i knew nothing i wasn't obviously I hadn't, uh, about movements and i tried to pry it out and i sort of ended up bending the the um the the stem and so uh, and i gave up and i sort of pushed it back in and put the cover back on um but from then on every time i wound it the whole the whole dial would move around it did a bit of a wobble up because it yeah. was bent stem uh which didn't really bother me uh it, it's still still worked um but so that was like your first foray into into actual exactly watchmaking into watchmaking, then, right? that's my proper watchmaker so yeah yeah that's when yeah. i became a watchmaker really <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, later on when I did watchmaker training, um, I, I actually, you know, I was trying to work on whatever I get my hands on and I did take that apart and I straightened out that stem beautifully and give a little quick service um, and put it back together. And now, you know, it's still got it. I need to get a new um, a new plexi uh, front for it, basically. Yeah. But apart from that, I it's saw, it, I saw that in the video you did. I like I like the fact yes. that the plexi was cracked on it because yeah anyone who actually works on watches they have they must have like many drawers full of <laughs> bits projects and things that they're working yeah, exactly. on exactly you know what it's like favors exactly. they're doing for yeah. mates yeah yep. it's a, yep. a common yep. common thing so how did you go from a, a young boy who was opening up a, a watch that you shouldn't have to to going for watchmaker training what's the progression between those two things well, i hope you got a bit of time because it's a kind of long story I, I when i was doing that opening up that watch and i was out in the middle of the wheat belt in new south wales um 500 k's west of sydney so there wasn't m much in the way of resources uh i did move to sydney when i finished school and did an apprenticeship i was aircraft engineer for Qantas of all things it was a different sort of um even that was a bit different for a boy from the bush um did my time at Qantas and then I wanted to travel. I went overseas and all, in all this time, you know, I was buying watches. I wasn't actually selling any. I was just buying watches and collecting watches, but they were often quartz watches. I had no clue. Um, some nice dress watches. I, kept, I remember going to the Qantas staff shop. They had Oriton watches. Um, they used to sell pretty cheap. They looked pretty nice. I thought they did anyway at the time. I bought a couple of those. Um, and then when I was in Sydney, I had a girlfriend gave me a, a tag Formula One. Um, wow. Was, I mean, it was a quartz watch, but it was it was it was pretty. You know, I, I got a lot of respect from guys at work with that one. Um, they thought she was a keeper. I didn't, but anyway, um, it was. And I've still got that watch. It's one of the the little, the smaller size Formula Ones. Um, is it got I, a, pl a plastic bezel on it? Is it that one, or is that exactly a one? black plastic yeah. bezel? Yeah, steel frosted case. Um, and I've had the dial, the hands, the movement. I think I've had it swapped out once when I drowned it and a few things. So it's not much original anymore, but um, 
it, it, it is a it was a cool watch and that was um again it sort of re, re jump started again my 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 love of watches i wore that for quite a few years and then i let, went overseas um went and lived in london for a couple of years and um Oh, back and forth and one thing that oh, I'll end up in Switzerland um, doing a quick trip around Switzerland with a mate which is another whole long story but it's um yeah I ended up meeting uh, the girl who eventually became my wife Swiss girl um, and yeah so we a couple of years later I mean yeah I, I did the whole Europe thing uh, but then I got married a few years later in the mid 90s um, and yeah we, we were back in Sydney for a couple of years and then we I want I wanted I was keen to you know to, to, to immerse myself in the history and culture and everything of Europe so um my poor long-suffering wife packed her bags again and off we went back to Switzerland um and I said we'd give it a try for a couple of years you know see how it went um and it was yeah it was quite a few years later that we we, we were still there really um so you, you went you go into watchmaking after you get married well saying? after yes exactly okay. yeah yeah uh, so what were you doing were you just kind of bombing around <laughs> Europe and taking all the, the bartender jobs like all good Australians yeah, exactly. do when they before go Before I was married, yes. Before I was married, yes. Um, once I was married, we, we'd come back and I was doing IT courses, trying to get into IT. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was all over the shop, really. I was a bit of a, a late... Um, it took me a while to find my niche. I ended up back in Switzerland. I uh, did a couple of consulting jobs for international companies so I could travel a lot free um that was great uh and then i did a sales job for a tooling company a high-end tooling company but a pretty boring product quite, very qualitative you know this is expensive tooling but it was still tooling you know used to go to factories all over the world pretty much um selling the stuff um and yeah it was it was it was a good gig it was um for, i did that for six years um i went everywhere except south america really with that job and so and that's when I you know, started looking at watches again um I had bought just before that a an Amiga an Amiga Constellation um that was just before the year 2000 I guess and I I bought it thinking this is this is my last watch it's a good watch <laughs> famous last words um and about Three months after buying it, I realised, oh, st stuff! I bought another quartz watch. I didn't, I didn't, you know, it was a. And actually, it turned out to be a nice. It was one of the constellations with a little applause on the side. It was a chrono. It had, it was a quartz base movement, but it had a. It was sort of hybrid because it had um, a proper chrono module on top with with hearts and everything. It was it was really nice. Um, so reset and everything was like a real chrono. Um, little little Omega. So that was, and then after that. So I've got to educate myself here. So I started buying the magazines. And as you know, in Switzerland, the culture for watchmaking is is just, it's massive. It's a different scale. You know, most most news agencies, literally little news agencies, they'll have five different watch magazines and maybe in a couple of different languages. You know, a decent big shop or news agency might have 10 or 15 different watch magazines. So it's quite accessible. Um, the industry is, of course, so big in Switzerland that everyone knows someone who works in it. Um, so after yeah, doing this uh, sales industrial sales job for six years, I I started look actually before the end of that six years, I started looking for a job in in in, in watchmaking. I said this is my next thing. I've got to got to do it. I've got to get into it. I loved it. You know, I started. I was going to Basel World already, just paying my way, going in, 
running around, seeing different watchmakers, different shops, um, going to different museums and all sorts of stuff just to try and <laughs> to, to, trying to pr- approach the watch world because I saw it was so big. And um, how, how old were you at this point? Um, I was in my mid, uh, late 20s, early 30s, I suppose, already. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, as I said, I was a late starter, but um, but I made up for my tardiness in, in, in my enthusiasm, by enthusiasm, really. And I... And I I'd, yeah, as I said, I'd, I'd go to the watch fairs and I'd, I'd do as much as I could. I'd go and talk to watchmakers in in, in shops, um, service guys and stuff. And um, and at one point, I just I I'd go up to the Valley de Joux, which is you know, the valley up in the Jura Mountains in Switzerland, where there's AP, uh, who is uh, Breguet, Jagil uh, Coultre, and all these these bon bon, a few big brands. And I'd go up there because it was only a half an hour drive from our house, up a really cool little road. I was kind of into um, sort of fast driving um, and had some cool cars and I'd just go up there for the drive and just cruise around in the Valley du Joux, around the Lake du Joux and I saw a notice once in some little place or a paper up there or something um, about a, an evening course on initiation to watches. Um, so I thought this is, this is cool, this is for me, I'll do that for sure and when I did an evening course it was, I think, I'm, I forget, probably for over five or six weeks you know one evening a couple of hours in one evening of the week so it wasn't very big it was just a you know you pull apart a 6.97 eta movement put it back together and that was pretty much it really um and i but i saw pretty quickly that i had i was relatively competent i had good 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 hands good eyes um and i started pulling apart this thing putting back together like three or four times before the end of the course and the guy giving the course it was in a it's in a tech school a local tech school and the guy giving the course, um, he said, oh, maybe you should look at you know, doing something. And I said, I said, I'm really keen to do something in watchmaking. Um, but I'd spent the 18 months before this looking, you know, sending my CV out to, to, to watch brands and, and retailers and all sorts, just trying to get my foot in the door. But without one of two things, um, which was experience in luxury goods, uh, it was very difficult. That was one. Or you had to know someone who could get you in, you know, get you in the back door basically um, into a job. And I had none of that. I, did, I didn't know anyone in the watch industry apart from, you know, I was running around meeting people to try and get to know somebody. Uh, and I'd had no, no, even though I was selling expensive tooling, I had no experience whatsoever in the luxury, luxury, any luxury. It would have been fine if I'd been selling Hermes scarves, or, but, but I had no, no experience whatsoever. Um, and I guess, you know, Knowing people was what I did the course for, and that's I met this guy, and he turned out to be the training director at Old My Pige, uh, this, this the gentleman doing the course. Um, and I said, I said, um, you know, how can I how can I get into it? And he said, well, there's there's one thing you might try, is um, AP have a, 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 a uh, an adult apprenticeship for watchmaking, and I said, oh, I'm yeah. all over that. But where do I sign? Where, where do I apply? He said, well, you send a letter to me, an official letter to me at my Pige. And I said, good, okay, fine, well, what's the address? So I very, you know, I was onto that um, pretty quickly and sent it off. And at the time, they call this training, uh, it's a 18 mois, which is French for 18 months. It's, it's what the training was to do a three-year watchmaking course in 18 months. Um, so, and that was in, only in French. So by then I'd, I'd had a few years there, my French was fine. Um, and it was basically in parallel with the actual apprentices, 
the young guys, kids doing apprenticeships, same workshop under the same director of, of uh, formation or of, um, training. And yeah, you did all of the practical and theoretical part of watchmaking, not 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 all the rest of it, not all the culture, the maths and everything, which normal apprentices yeah. do over there. It's, it's really in-depth thing, apprenticeships. And so in 18 months, and you had exams every three months, six months, serious exams every six months. Um, and you come out the other end as, a, as an AP qualified, the same as a qualified watchmaker, basically, um, which was brilliant. Um, so you were the, you were the, you were like the granddad there was they had it had older guys than me but yeah by then it was no i was definitely amongst the older guys i actually turned out to be about a year older than the director for of, of, of training um in the end i found out but um so he yeah he, um i put him into place a bit but um it was yeah it was it was basically an uh, adult formation uh, adult train adult course apprenticeship um and they actually paid you for that, you know, they give you a small salary. And, okay. and but, I'd, but I'd come out, you know, I'd spent six years having an awesome job um, with no kids. And we and my wife was a, actually a private banker working at a bank, um, but not just behind the teller. She was a, you know, she was a proper, proper portfolio managing banker. So we were, you know, it was pretty good. We were on a pretty good wicket. Um, and from that, having a couple of great salaries and living in a nice place and having nice fun cars we had to sort of tighten the belt a bit and my poor wife kept working um and i did this i worked for ap and i came out the other end of that it, it took me actually 20 months we had a few uh, some there's not hiccups but um it took it actually took my colleague and i there was two of us doing it, it took us 20 months these people at the time they were putting on two of these every six months and then it went back to two every year and they had like yeah, 200 applicants. It was nuts because um, it was a you know, people wanted to get into this industry, um, and it, but it was a, a really a real shortcut to to become a watchmaker, basically. I guess um, you showed your kind of passion and exactly. That's about right. determination yeah. to to get into it, which yeah. again for someone like me um, who's now in his late 30s has only been in the industry exactly about three years or something now to to come into something, mm-hmm. and that's why. I, one of the reasons I created the, the website and and the the podcast and stuff is I want to get into people's heads that it's not really ever too late to follow exactly. your dreams. And if you're passionate about something and you get into it, you can mm-hmm. make it make a success. Well, I'm of a it. prime example of that. It was yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all about the passion. And and even if it even if yeah. you're not a tremendous success at it, you're still doing something you enjoy doing rather than some jobs that you don't exactly. look forward to, yeah. to going to. So you, you win whatever happens pretty much. Um, Absolutely. So w- yeah. when, you, when you started, I mean, I guess when you, you went into it and you'd obviously spent a lot of time beforehand kind of taking your own personal time to learn about watches and speaking to watchmakers and stuff, how was it different, the, the kind of reality of watchmaker training because <laughs> um, obviously people have a very romanticized view, as as did I, of what yes. watchmaking, watchmaking training is is like. Um, how did that differ from what you imagined it was going to be to what was the actual reality of it? 
Um, I, I didn't have, to be honest, I didn't have that many preconceptions because I, I, I wasn't really involved at all with the culture of watchmaking. I, I did realize when I started, um, you know, it, it's it's right down to the it's the details that count and it's the basics that you have to go right back to basics. You don't start pulling apart that old that old movement, the six point nine seven, which I keep, I keep spouting on about. You know, it's what everyone starts on. Um, you don't even touch that for six months. Um, and actually, the first thing, which was kind of interesting, and I and I saw afterwards why, um, and I didn't understand much at the time. The first few weeks, the first probably uh, at least six weeks, was spent on one project, which was just filing, how to file with little tiny files, um, oh, big files to start with. We had to, firstly for the first week, we had to make our own tools or put our you know put all the mandrels in handles and everything else, and and to do all that, um, and then over the course of the the 18 months training or the 20 months training, we basically made a lot of our own tools, which is what they used to do in the old days. You know, so yeah. that's, it's a really a real cultural thing. Uh, but then we had to do, you know, once our tools were sorted and we had to pay you know, a few hundred dollars, or I forget what it was, but we got a really good set of tooling and a beautiful layette uh, drawers from AP branded layette, basically in all wood, beautiful wood. Um, so that was all nice to have. We didn't know what half it was for, obviously at the start. <laughs> yeah. But, but then we learned to file. We basically got the big, the big file, and we just learned to file and filing um, curves and and you know onglage or chamfering is really just just filing. At, 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 you know, to start with, anyway, you use you know, we were using um, diamond diamond paste and everything else to get a perfect perfect chamfer and polish. But um, filing was the base of it all. Big files, working down to tiny little files, um, and we spent. Weeks and weeks and weeks just doing that, and I'm thinking, what, what, what on earth am I doing? Right but after that, it's, it kind of got interesting. After that, I think, yeah, then we started attacking the movements. But with that filing, and 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 what they were trying to drum into us as well is because, um, you know, if you do a, if you're going to adjust an anchor, for example, and you want to, well, what I should have done here was got my little book out with all the different. Um, there's a book called Alexic. Uh, watchmaking it has four different languages of all parts in a watch. I've got some, one somewhere, and all all of my training was in French. So I often ha I have to trot out or I come out with words that are French and no one knows what I'm talking about. Um, but basically, the the tongue on an anchor, I guess you'd call it. Um, you, you need to adjust that, and if you need to make it flatter, and then you have to file the ends of it off and make the end nice and pointy. And and this is obviously on a microscopic level, um, and that's where the filing, the feeling for filing comes into play. When you when you when you're filing tiny parts or little bridges, you know, to chamfer a bridge, to start with, um, you need that that feeling, which is you can only get with experience. And we didn't have, you know, you're not going to get it in three months, but over 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 a few years, you really pick up that um, feeling of how to file, you know, how much material you're taking off, um, and that was a really yeah a, a good a really good basis um, for for my whole watchmaking experience. Uh, and I use it so many times, and I have colleagues who ended up in in the workshops in Audemars where they only do skeletonization and they do the chamfering and, you know, over and over again. And all of the high complication guys spending six months to put a movement together, um, they're all doing their own chamfering and stuff. So it's, it's it was a real eye-opener education, but it was pretty basic at the start. Um, but then we build on that. We build on that to, you know, become competent watchmakers, basically. Uh, and so there's guess, a lot of people went... So yeah, I guess you were lucky kind of going into then without any kind of preconceived ideas of what it would be. 
Because if you yeah, did, probably exactly. the whole filing thing for for <laughs> such a long yeah. time might be might be off putting. I I even a I remember get, getting a file handed to me to just to to do my screwdrivers, and I was like, this thing's yes. this thing's massive. I'm not like building a car. Why am I? Why have I get this huge file to work these tiny little screwdrivers? It just, it just seemed mm-hmm. so kind of backwards to yeah, me. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's to yeah, it's it's all part of it, I guess. That kind of you yeah, start it's, um, progress along along from there. Um, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's again and again as you mentioned, the screwdrivers. Um, you know, shaping screwdrivers. That was one of the basic things as well. It was probably what we did after filing the bit of brass we had this thing the, the first thing was called a train of brass so it was like a a uh, maybe a 30 or 40 centimeter long piece of brass two centimeters wide about six centimeters thick and we just cut that up into different spots we had a, we had a technical drawing for this we'd cut it all up into pieces maybe 10 pieces and each time the cut would get more complicated it'd be, a, it'd be like an angle cut first and then it'd be a sharper angle then it'd be a curve and then all that it's hard to explain but all these cuts in of 10 pieces you you're cutting it up into different parts, so you have to use your your little box fill, you know, your little tiny wire saw yeah. to, to saw it to start with, and then you have to file it, file it, file it, and it was it was hard. It was um you know because you take it across once you, once you thought you had a good fit, it was like a jigsaw puzzle pieces basically, all these say ten pieces of of of, of, of brass, um, and once you had it, so you thought it was pretty good fit. You'd hold it up to the light, make sure no light was coming in. If there was, you'd file it a bit more and you'd muck around and you'd take it across to the training, the guy, the, the manager of the workshop, and he'd hold it up to the light. And he'd say, and he'd get his pen and he'd mark there and there. It's no good. Set it back off. You go for another two days. Um, so that was, yeah, it was a bit sort of, well, uh, it's a bit disheartening sometimes. Um, but I saw after yeah, we built on that so much. We really, you know, it was a, it was a fundamental part of the training, and then we used that, and then to, to to you know to shape a screwdriver or to file the right screwdriver, and we ended up ended up having to do a set of screwdriver tips for every different movement we had, we touched, which in the end of that was probably 15 different movements, I guess 12 or 15. So we'd have a bunch of screwdriver tips in this special little box just for that movement. You'd change all your screwdrivers because the screws would be, even though they're either the 120 or a 100. You know, a one mil screw or 1.2 mil screw. You know, the widths, the, the slot would be different width or different, different, different depths. Um, so you'd have to get your your screwdrivers for that movement before you start on that movement and get it sorted out. Do you know um, if they still do the same level of of watchmaking training? Because the stuff I hear now is all everything is kind of been kind of boiled down to the. I wouldn't even. I don't even want to say the very essence of watchmaking, but it it is. Um, I mean, some people say there's there's no, or the majority of people aren't watchmakers anymore. The majority of people are. They're more like watch mechanics. We call them operators. Yeah, um, they're changing. And, they're changing yeah. parts rather than there. There's not much making going on, um, and I guess with the way technology's progressed and CNC machines and and things, it, it doesn't really make financial sense for mass-produced watches anyway um, to have that level of, of, of human input. Um, but I just wonder or think about the actual skills mm. and 
how how much of it is kept alive and how much of it is you're never going to really need to use yeah. that so why bother uh, wasting the time teaching you i think you'd be surprised that the old brands the big old brands um you know I, i'm talking ap patek um gg is, is quite good and i know the guys that worked i know the guys that what well, i did until recently the guy that ran their training workshop at patek uh gg he's a friend of mine and he's moved somewhere else now but just recently but yeah you know, i know the people that work there and and I'd, I'd be actually curious to see how the workshops are here the training workshops um for guys like yourself um and i'm sure it's a bit different but i think with the big old brands with a heritage a proper heritage i want to say proper you know the, most of the big the long-standing brands have a have a decent heritage but Brands like AP still, I know brands like AP, especially brands we don't have to, you know, that aren't, um, they're not publicly listed, so they don't have to answer to shareholders and they don't have to make money for every single operation they do. Um, that's where you'll still see that. I, I'm, I'm a know for a fact, my training, they still do the same training. Um, funnily enough, the guy that was before me uh, in, in the Disney Mother, this training I did, um, there was two guys and one's gone off and done his own company where he specializes in just Shane Frank and he does that for, for big brands and does an awesome job. He's got 15 guys working for him. And the other guy, uh, his, his, his uh, colleague at the time, he's actually now responsible for AEP's training, training department. The other guy's left, the, the gentleman that employed me, basically. Um, so, and there's a, they've been doing this for years and years and years and there's people within the company with deep, really, really good jobs in R&D, uh, all different areas of Automapige, um, who have done that training, and they're still doing the same thing. They did scale it back, and, you know, they stretched it out between between um, between the, the uptake of, the, of, the, of these these trained guys um, when, when things, the GFC, for example, um, yeah. when things got tough. So there's a lot less of them, but they still do, and they still they still carry it on. So it's, it's amazing. I, and I think I'm pretty sure... The other brands would do the same, and in you know some of the big the big German brands, they have a very heritage focus as well. Lange and and you know even I don't know Junggans and and, and Glazut, Glazut companies, um, they would still have that that they really try and instill in their apprentices, even the young apprentices, that it's not just about swapping out a, a bridge or whatever. That they, they they and often even later on in, in in their career they might not use the stuff, but you know how to, you know, you use, yeah. you use the micro lathes, you know how to do it, you know how to turn an axis, you know how to, how to, how to make a balance wheel, you know how to bend a hairspring. Uh, and that was all part of the trade-offs. Obviously, we did that later on. Um, but, yeah, they are quite, over there, they're quite focused on it. And I don't think, as you say, with the, with the money side of things, uh, it's probably not worth a lot of people doing it. And the bigger companies, when I was there going through, they just started doing operator training, which, again, is, is quite basic. The first little bit's the same, but then they they, they skim, across, skim over a lot of stuff. But then they come out at their end and they're operators. Uh, and there's a whole that actually uh, you know there's a there's a qualification or operator qualification, which was a, I think is a pity. Um, it's definitely dumbed down a little bit. But it's for people who may not have the skills or may not have that the talent to, to learn the stuff. Um, and they just they can pump the pump the pump the watches out. They can you know it's more of a that's where you get your real um, your, your production line style thing happening where you have 20 watches on a, on a circular plate and you just bang in a certain bridge in and, and that sort of thing. But there are still most of the guys doing the high-end watches and the extra flat watches. They will have gone through proper training. 
um, to learn all the basics. So it's yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's different. I, I guess <laughs> it does kind of highlight the the difference in the super high end stuff from the the mass produced stuff. That um, even when Anthony yes. was on before and he's talking about uh, JLC and how they still have and I know Patek's the same. They still have all the same yeah. tools, which Yes, the whole thing of making your own tools and maintaining the tools and maintaining all the machinery and stuff you've got, and it's the same yes. thing you used 100, 200 years ago, and they're still using it now to do yeah, things exactly the same way. Um, yep. So yep. that is, a, yeah, that is a, a reassuring, a reassuring part of it. So when you got to the end of your your training with with AP, what, yeah. what happened? What did you do after that? <clears throat> Excuse me, I. I... Well, the funny thing was, timing-wise, it wasn't great because, well, it was actually ended up being really good for me. Um, I got the end of my training and the GFC here. We didn't even call it a GFC. I didn't know what a GFC was until I came back to Australia. <laughs> yeah. but it was a bit of a, it was a little bit of a recession. Um, there was a, there was less, there was obviously less sales, and so the whole company was scaling back. But that was the advantage of working for a private family-owned company like AP was that they didn't uh, – it, it was really tough. They were doing a lot – selling a lot less watches and producing, therefore, a lot less watches. But they did not um, let go a single employee. And that was out of, you know, I guess when I was there, it was at least 300. Uh, when I left, it was probably 500. They had a pretty big expansion program in, in the several years I was there. But they didn't put anybody off. Um, they just really farmed out people. They got them doing different stuff and, and, and cross-skilled a lot of people. So it was quite impressive. I, I was, it was it was actually you know, a big respect to them for that. Um, but, yeah, I come out of the training and all of a sudden there was no work. You know, the workshops didn't have enough work, um, which ended up being fortuitous for me because uh, usually you'd finish the training and then you'd spend you – know, you'd do what they call stage or work experience or, or, or you know, time in different workshops. And there's probably five major workshops. Um, you know, there'd be one for extra flat. There'd be one for doing different sorts of movements. There'd be one for casing up. And there's one for, and then there's small offshoot workshops for just putting hands on certain things. There's testing, controlling, uh, it's a whole bunch of stuff. And then you've got your CNC and all the, machine, all the mechanical side of it as well. So there's a, a, lot, a, lot, of, a lot of workshops through, throughout the, the manufacturer, as they called it. Um, but they had no work. So the, the, you, you, we would normally spend, before deciding our final, where we wanted to go and where, where, what we are going to end up as, as as watchmakers, where we were going to end up, we would have to spend another two years just you know, going through all these different workshops. And so we get to know the people, the people, the jobs, the managers of these workshops. They had to like you. If they didn't like you, you know, you're never going to work there. Um, so it was all really personal side of side of it where we had to, yeah, get to know the people and the workshop and the workshop manager and and all these different different people. Um, but of course, we, my colleague and I, um, we got to the end and they didn't have any work for us. So we, we we basically, I wanted to go into a lot of a lot of watchmakers when they go through that sort of program or even apprentices, they like ended up being after they like ending up in after sale service because you get a lot of variety basically yeah if yeah. you're in a workshop where you just do the same thing day in day out and it can be a bit monotonous people like after sales service and that's sav in in, in french it's uh, a sav workshop it's um that's what people are aiming for and, and we were so lucky because we pretty much went straight to after sales service because there was no no work in the actual workshop they didn't have enough work for the people that have been there for 10 years let alone 
to find some rookie trainee um, work. So I was lucky in that one of their affiliates, which happened with a Swiss affiliate, which was a different location, but just down the road, you know, down the road, 30, 40 Ks, um, needed a, uh, a watchmaker, a, a sort of entry-level watchmaker to do their quartz stuff, plus um, prepare movements for their watchmakers. They had a team of maybe 12 watchmakers, 10 or 12 watchmakers. Um, and they needed to put in place a quality assurance program, which I'd done in a previous job, and I thought, oh, I'll put my hand up for that. Um, Again, go through an interview process, talk to the boss down there, talk to HR, talk to it was every every move with the my pig air was a, was a big was a big um same when I got the first the, the the job the training it was there was exams there was a, there was interviews I had three or four interviews um there was all sorts of tests we had a bench test once we'd come out of the we'd just finished our training so they knew what we could do but we had another bench test in the sales service department because that's just how they've always done it and you've got to see what you're really good at and what you're not good at and see where you're going to go. They decided I was just good enough to go down to work for Audemars Piguet Switzerland, which is not the same company as Audemars Piguet Le Boisseau, they have affiliates, um, still in Switzerland, but they were responsible for all of the our sales service in Switzerland for the Swiss market plus um, some other European markets that come through there basically. Much smaller workshop, smaller, smaller, um, smaller, smaller company. It was a separate company, um, and it was great. Um, I, I went down there. I, I worked there for. So I put this quality assurance thing in place. Did some watchmaking. Got to know the watchmakers there, and yeah, I did that for almost two years. Um, and it was, you know, it was a little bit. I drove there as well. It wasn't that far from my house. Switzerland's not a big place, but got a lot of good experience in after sales service and also because I was managing the little quality control program, um, I got to check every single watch that went out into the Swiss market and some of the French market and a few other markets, but mostly primarily the Swiss market, which is actually a pretty big market um, for high-end brands, Switzerland. Um, they have shops in, you know, they've got a lot of tourist shops in the touristy areas, Lucerne and these places, and then Zurich and Geneva, they got their own big, big shops and they put a bit of stuff out in the market and everything had to come through across my desk, which was great. I saw, you know, I saw some really cool watches, tourbillons and, and high complication watches. And um, can I just I ask before, before yeah. I forget, did mm. you have, um, was there ever any, any pushback uh, for you being a <laughs> non-Swiss person? I mean, I know everyone loves Australians so much. Yeah. Um, 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 no, and I and I want I I said to HR and I said to the managers, I look, I'll go down there and I'll do this, but I want to make sure. Okay, when I first did the training, I said to the training guy, you know, before I signed, I said, look, I'm only going to do this. You know, I'm 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 signing up for a year and a half of apprentice wages, basically. Um, and I hope to get something out of the other end. But if you're sure that I my French is good enough for a start, I'd, you know, um, and they said, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. And I found it afterwards that, yeah, um, a lot of French speakers, the kids, they're, 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 their French is worse than our English, for example. You know, it's that sort of thing where if, you, if you're passionate about it and you like it, you, you'll get by. Even the technical stuff, yeah, you pick it up. Um, but that, that was a bit of a hurdle. But And all the training was in French. Every All the theory, all the exams, everything was in total French. So it, that was a big, bigger bigger um, sort of barrier for me. And then when I went off to work in the other workshop, 
it was more a case of experience I was worried about because I was yeah a, a green rookie. I wasn't worried about any Aussie. People love Aussies, and that wasn't a, a big deal. So there was um, never any kind of like you're here, you're coming over here. No. First of all, you're no. stealing all the bar jobs in London. Now you're stealing yeah, all yeah, the watchmaking exactly. jobs. No. Okay. They loved it. They absolutely loved it. They 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 talk all day. They have opportunity to talk to an Aussie. They they'd wonder what the heck you were doing there. They'd always ask me because they, everyone in in Switzerland wants to come and live in Australia. Yeah. Um, so that was the big thing. Once they got past that, they figured out why I wanted to be there. Um, they were fine, but they, but again, I had this. Well, my advantage was, was I was a bit, I was a bit older than a lot of these guys. So the credibility thing, as far as not knowing much, I I, I sort of made up for by being, um, yeah. You know, uh, a bit older then, and I and I and I'd been around, and I'd I'd been through the university of life, so to speak, and I could um yeah. you know I'd, I'd had experience with different things, so I could, and yeah, I wouldn't take any crap from them, um, even though you know because I had a good grasp of what theory was, and even though I didn't have much experience, um, I'd done most of the stuff they were doing, or I'd learned how to do it, so I knew what they were doing, and that that really was um something I used you know for the rest of my career. You, 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 once you once you learn the theory, right now. As I say, I'm, I'm an ex-watchmaker. I don't do much watchmaking, but I know exactly how every bit works. Um, so you, it's just a massive, massive credibility thing. Um, yeah. And I so guess yeah, the passion the, part of it as well exactly. would give yeah. you that. Counts yeah. for a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. One other question. I just like to ask questions because otherwise I'll, I'll forget later on. And I'll um, ramble on. Yeah. And you'll, I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard that much rambling so far. Oh, God, we're at 45 minutes already. Jesus. Okay. Um, I, on one of your videos you were on YouTube, you were going through uh, some some uh, watches and you mentioned uh, a tourbillon and you said something like, I don't know why anyone would want to buy a tourbillon. Yeah. Do you remember saying something like that? I, wanna... I don't, remember, don't remember, but I, I, can, I can see myself saying that. I, I still think the same well, thing. I haven't changed my tune. Okay. Do you want to <laughs> explain uh, why you would think people shouldn't buy a tourbillon or buy people i'm not saying people shouldn't buy a tourbillon but i definitely shouldn't be within the first 10 watches you buy put it that way um unless you've got a lot of money tourbillons as you know you know what a tourbillon it's it's um everyone trots out the line you know tourbillons well the tourbillons were invented for a pocket watch which was always in the same position sitting in that fob pocket um and basically it was not to cancel out, but to ne- negate uh, the, the the effects of gravity on the the, the balance uh, the balance wheel, the anchor, the whole the whole regulating organ basically, um, because it turned the whole thing turned. So you wouldn't have discrepancies in in timing due to the gravity or, or the way the watch was sitting there, not moving at all. You know, not moving in your pocket. You, know, you pull it out two, two or three times a day, whatever they did. Um, and the rest of the time it was sitting there in the same position. Basically, so it's like a crown up position, you know, all all, all day. Um, so you'd it was invented for that to to, to counteract that basically in a pocket watch. Um, now on wristwatches, obviously they're moving all over the place all the time, and tourbillons are a bit they're a bit fragile. So yeah, obviously you know it's, it's replacing that balance wheel with that whole cage and and balance wheel, the anchor, the cog, the wheels that need to go with it. Um, it's it's a bit it's a bit delicate. There's tiny axis there of of, of wheels, which are um, you know prone to damage if they're under shock. Basically, uh, there's just a lot more moving parts. It's like your car. You know, the more the more technical your car is, and 
electric windows when they first came out, remember everyone was saying it was just something else to go wrong, you can't fix yeah. it yourself. Uh, the more moving parts you have, the more problems you're going to have. And I've, I've seen tourbillons, which have been really problematic. Um, so you weren't saying people shouldn't buy tourbillons, you're just saying it's not ideal as a first watch. Which <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. If um, anyone buys a tourbillons, I mean, I'm sure there must be some people who, who have made that that choice. Yes, but, I guess um, so. There's, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that they are, it's uh, uh, a kind of display of watchmaking prowess, if you like. Exactly. It's not, that's, that's pretty much yeah. all they're good for. <laughs> I yeah. mean, to be honest. Um, okay. You've got manufacturers, you've got um, guys like uh, Stephen Grubel and Forsey, you know, they're putting out inclined tourbillons and, the, and they've studied the things in every different angle of inclination for the tourbillon cage. Um to have perfect timing, you know, they're after a, a minus zero plus one um, for, for, for a long amount of time. That's what they're, that's what the timing they're after, their timing ticket, whatever. So that is really um, form, what is it, function, function before form, whichever way it goes. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've made those watches to be perfect timing watches and um, um, uh, yeah, they're made for that, but you still not, you're not going to, Go, go diving with them or go running around yeah. um, throwing them around or, sh or submitting them to shocks which you shouldn't be tourbillons are a bit of it they're a, it's a delicate thing and i remember i mean way back you know the the the, the amount of brands that did tourbillons back in the day you count them on one hand there's no one doing them um, yeah you know and then they sort of tag are doing them and yeah yeah sort of yeah <laughs> but yeah they, 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 they become trendy they become a, a real sign that this is this is the the, the bees knees of, of yeah. watchmaking everyone wanted to do it you know and then blanc bought out different ones and then the carousel and the bob torpion the big arguments about that what what was what um so yeah it's just not it, it, it's there's no okay you might argue there's no need for a watch these days you have your phone but yeah there's no yeah. real proper requirement for a torpion um and you can get some awesome movements which do other stuff um and yeah it's just more complicated it's something to go wrong um it's 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 a nice showcase for, for skills and especially when you can get some beautiful looking tourbillons and the gyro tourbillons all sorts of stuff yeah. um there's but it's yeah a lot of work they're, they're very very expensive um for something which is you know to, to be honest it's not really a, a useful thing um and it's totally gone away from what they were invented for you know, like they're good, they're good to look at, which is you know what people. Yeah, buy they're certainly interesting. I think at. I can yeah. understand why they they grab people's yeah people's sure attention. Now, do you remember before we started to record this, I asked you a question. Do you remember um, I asked you many questions? The question was, yeah, have you Sorry. been to the toilet before we started to record? <laughs> now, while uh, I ask you. If you'd been to the toilet while I was mocking you and asking if you had a bucket, you didn't get a toilet. Near, I didn't go to the yeah. toilet. And as I'm on my yeah, second pint of gin and tonic, we're going to take a <laughs> short break right. for a moment and we'll be right back. Um, don't mean to just stop. I'll just wait for you. Okay. I'll just sit here. Yeah. And yeah. Finish we'll do, my I, I don't know if you want to. Yeah. We'll do. Yeah, we'll maybe go to an advertisement break, and then once we have advertisers in the future, we can we can put it in. But we'll be we'll be right back, guys. Okay. I'll hit my mute button. You tell me when you're back. Okay. Cheers. Oh. I haven't even started yet. Okay. Oh, sorry. You, you, you ask a question. Okay. Don't let, don't expect me to just take off. You gotta you gotta prompt I me. Still somehow. haven't told people that's through the magic of the internet and stuff. I've come back from my pee break. 
Did you pee while I was away, Rob? I don't need to pee. I'm good. Yeah. Are you sure? Um, okay. I'm pretty sure. I mean, it was such a, a critical part of the conversation as well. I, I've I lost like, total track of the whole thing. And then I was like, <laughs> you start talking about it, and I was like, God, I need to, I need to be here. I'm looking around the room. I'm like, oh, God, can I pee in this? Can I use this? Can I have to use my mute button to, to pee into a glass? But as I as we're all about keeping it real here, I didn't want to be too real with you guys and pee while we're recording the podcast. So. Well, maybe we'll have to that point. further on down the line so i was questioning you about yeah well not questioning but asking your thoughts on on uh turbulence which i think you give a good uh yeah a good idea um, a good idea about oh, you know i i can see the the attraction for a, for a multi-millionaire who has a lot of pieces different pieces and he wants something a bit out of the ordinary um or a collector who feels that for his particular brand focus or you know he likes tourbillons and there's, there are certain tourbillons which really appeal to me but i just don't think it's a good focus for most people most sort of mere mortals uh collectors to actually have any aspirations about i, I don't i don't you know there's plenty of other things especially when you take into account that the prices of them are usually exorbitant um well apart from ones you mentioned before some sort of cheaper new ones uh and and actually just started that trend of, of really bringing out so-called value for money tourbillons um and then tag and whoever else um but yeah it's just uh, for me it doesn't really grab me that 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 complication so to speak so yeah i was about to ask what's your ruling on it is it a complication or is it not a complication that's something i've heard within enthusiast uh kind of groups a lot that kind of argument of is it do you rate do you say it is a complication or it's not a complication yes oh, it's it a complication right. yes okay um and i don't remember i know I, i've talked to swiss watchmakers about it as well i'm pretty sure we part of our training that was one of the things which was not hammered home but it was, was something made clear that's a complication it's not a basic balance wheel uh or, or anchor escape it's such a complication really okay next question mm. do you want to can you have a pee break now fine for pee break <laughs> We need to start getting a signal next time. I should have typed on the screen or something. <laughs> desperately, desperately needing to pee. Wrap up. I could have just kept waffling. You could have gone off and come back, and I could have still been talking. No, you know what? That did cross my mind as well. Okay, <laughs> next question. Um, are you able to explain to people the difference between a tourbillon and a carousel? It's difficult without a drawing. Put it that way. Um, so not ideal for podcasting then not ideal for podcasts I, I i can um basically it's just down to um the way the axes move or the way the balance wheel in the tourbillon moves basically um and even then there's a few different variations of each of them so it's not easy without a drawing there's a really good explanation in the book called the theory of watchmaking um do you have that book do you have a book I... called the I, yeah, well, somebody gave gave it to me, and then, right. and then they went to work at Rolex and they took it back. So ah, that really should be uh, it's a promotion. Everyone, book. yeah, it's the thing everyone yeah. everyone's supposed to to have, right? It's the the, the Bible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm going to bring them in, so I'll, I'll get you one. But I'm going to um, bring a bunch of them in because it's it's a good starting point, and it really at the start, it, you know, it, it it doesn't dumb it down, but it does. Uh, it's a gentle introduction um, through a lot of a lot of watchmaking stuff. Um, and there is a, a diagram in that of, 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 I think it's on one page of, of both different different variations of the or, you know carousel as opposed to tourbillon. Um, 
so no i can't explain that with the podcast the difference we'll um, save that for our, our soon to be hit youtube series exactly. then. Okay. Yes, yes we'll exactly. get you a big whiteboard and some color i've got pens. a whiteboard sitting right here behind me so i can do the okay. whole i can go nuts yeah <laughs> okay i'll 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 save the um, difficult questions for for next time. Then, okay. So where are we? You've you're working in the the kind of after after sales service part of things. Yes, yes. That's so when you were talking about you, you were, yeah, yeah, you were getting to, to see a lot of cool yeah cool stuff. Yes, I was. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd only been there a couple of years um, when the next sort of opportunity came along which was a, a boutique in Geneva. Um, it's kind of complicated. I, I always, I, I don't know where to start with this thing because, you know, even people get their head around the idea of Audemars Piguet being in Le Basu, the, the village up in the hills, and then there's a separate Audemars Piguet within Switzerland, down on Lake Geneva where I worked then uh, afterwards, um, a little town called Morges. You know, that's where this little workshop was. It just was a small structure of say 20 people all together. So you had like 12 watch, 10 watchmakers, a bit of support, sales support, admin, the manager, and his assistant. And this was all like a, a real AP apart, if you will, um, from 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 Audemars Piguet, uh, 40k's way up in the hills. It's quite it's quite bizarre. Um, and Audemars Piguet Switzerland, which is a different legal entity. I, I changed employers. I went from AP Le Boisseau. I, I, I terminated my contract with them, started a new contract with Audemars Piguet Switzerland, um, which was called AP Diffusion, which is basically uh, distribution, is their main business. And then, so AP Switzerland also were had a joint venture going with the owner of Richard Mill Europe, not Richard Mill uh, head office, again, the big, the big distributor for Europe, which was uh, RM... Um, EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, they had a joint venture, which was a, a, a Richard Mill shop, the first Richard Mill shop in Switzerland, um, a flagship shop. And so my manager at Audemars Piguet Switzerland was actually involved, you know, his, the, the company he was running was half owners in this, this shop, which was next to an AP shop, an AP um Boutique, again, another special entity, a weird entity where they had, it's a multi-brand. AP was the main brand they sold, but it was a, a multi-brand shop in the same city in Geneva as another standalone AP shop. It was really quite complicated. It was, it's historical. A lot of these stuff. No wonder people historic. get confused. I know. The Swiss that's what I'm industry. saying. It's, it's, so yeah, exactly. They really make it, it's convoluted. Um, but in Geneva itself, so they've got a big AP boutique, beautiful boutique in the middle of the city. And then in the one of the, the biggest hotel, the biggest five-star hotel, just on the just you know, a kilometre away or five less, um, across the other side of the river, there was a shop in that in the lobby on the lower level of that hotel, which was owned by Audemars Piguet again. But they'd bought off the old original owner who had multi-brands. We sold Laurent Ferrier, we sold uh, Gilles Perigot, we sold a bunch of stuff. Um, so that and that had a sister boutique next to it, which was kind of ran as a separate separate boutique which was richard mill um and so obviously you mentioned richard mill and people's ears prick up it, it's 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 a, it's a it's a you know it's a it's an amazing brand the guy has done well in the last uh, since in the last 20 years um anyway they were looking for someone who actually sort of started out as a watchmaker to go into that that shop the, the boutique 
but they wanted a manager as well. They didn't have a manager. They wanted someone to be able to manage it, to be able to explain the watchmaking stuff. They wanted to put a little watchmaking bench in there, all in stainless steel and smoked glass. It was, was, looked brilliant, but it was very impractical. Um, I had like a timing device, which I had, I had all the tools, which I never used hardly, except changing straps. Anyway, so I, I went for that job and they, they needed someone who spoke English and French, which was suited me, uh, and that had a technical background so you could you had the credibility of being a watchmaker but you had sales experience um so and i had sales experience from a previous job so it would all really come together really nicely and i put my hand up and said pick me pick me um i went there for a few days again did you again went through the whole hr thing and so i changed employees again i went from what might be switzerland I, I i terminated my contract and started a contract with richard mill europe um <laughs> And that was complicated as well because there's no one, no other rich Mill Europe employees. I ended up working for the factory. I was the only guy that worked for the factory, 100 kilometres away, who wasn't actually in the factory. Um, they liked their contract, the Swiss. Yeah. So I went to Geneva. I moved to Geneva and um, managed that the Richard Mill boutique there. And I was there for uh, six years, five or six years, uh, five years, five years. Um, Again, brilliant experience. Uh, that, that you know, it's the next level. Uh, I was I was going up to the factory um, in Libreux, which is kind of past the um, Chaux de Fonds from Switzerland, and it was like an hour hour and a half drive. Um, Richard Mill would come. Richard Mill, obviously, I got to know him relatively well. Um, since we're in Geneva, there was a lot of their ambassadors, their sports guys, and that, that they would come in, or their managers would come in. I got to know some some pretty cool people there. And so what, and it, what year is this? What year are we talking uh, about here? 2010, I think, around that. Yeah. Uh, from 2010 to about 2015. Yeah. Was, okay, so this is before they, they kind of blew up to the level they're at. They were now. blowing up. I helped them. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they were getting big. They were getting big. Um, yeah, but the first year I was there, I mean, you know, without going into confidential figures and stuff, we, we probably, I might have sold, I don't know, we maybe had... Uh, 20 watches a year we might have sold so it was you know it's pretty quiet um no. the last two years i was there was one a week uh, constantly uh, average average you know we we had some months where they'll be quieter but we had constantly um one, one one watch a week and as well just for the last the last year for example um i mean this is sort of you know it's public uh, figures that so people everyone knows that their the, the average price at the time was 150,000 Swiss francs. I'm not sure what that is, Aussie dollars. It's almost twice that, but back then it wasn't. Uh, 150,000 Swiss francs was the price of the average watch sold globally for Richard Mill. My average price was 250,000 because I sold a fair few tourbillons and some exotic material ones, um, diamond set ones for a lot of our Asian clientele. So yeah, you got an average. It's you, know, you can do the maths. What the turnover of the little shop was. This is nice. It wasn't a little shop. It was a beautiful big boutique. Um, but yeah, selling a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar watch on average every week. It was, it was a good little money spinner. Did you um, ever talk anyone out of getting a, a Turbion Richard Mille for their first watch? No, I I thought it was an excellent idea when people wanted to talk <laughs> yeah. about their first watch. When, it, um, when you're selling <laughs> it for that kind of money. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was um, encouraging. I people. mean, yeah, it's a great first watch for your five-year-old exactly. son. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was a marketing thing. Richard is a, is a great marketing guy. He's, he's brilliant. That's what he's best at. He's not a watchmaker. He's, he's a marketing yeah. guru. Same as uh, Max Busse, the same sort of thing. He's not a watchmaker. Um, so you know, these people 
that's why the brands do so well because they're they're, they're fantastic at marketing. Um, you know, I'm not not taking anything away from the technical side of the brand, but there is a, a point where you think, well, you know, is it really um, what what are the guys paying for? Um, as a watchmaker, you have a pretty good idea of what. Well, if you make an effort to work it out and talk to watchmakers and talk to material people and everything else, what the cost of a watch is um, and the movements and everything else, and you and you sort of you take that away from the retail price and um, you get a fair margin, basically. I guess it's reassuring to to see that brands like that that are selling the super high end stuff also value uh, experience and and technical know how from the people that are actually selling their watch, which is maybe something that uh, yes. brands further on down the tree, it's not really that essential. Exactly. But once yeah. you're selling something to somebody for $250,000, they're going to want to know that you know what you're talking about and that you yes. know about yes. watches. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've heard about other yeah other brands that have, have done similar things or employed people like that. And it's, yeah, it makes you think, okay, these people are actually rare. taking things seriously. It's pretty rare. It's, it's, to be honest, it's quite rare. And you know what it's like. You go down Collins Street or you Ruderone in Geneva and you, you go through, there's very, very, very few boutiques who have an actual watchmaker selling stuff. But again, it gets back to the thing of watchmakers in general being introvert people. Um, they're not great at selling or, or, or talking to people. You know, that's why they become watchmakers. They're great mechanically and they want to just sit there all day. The whole world is a 20 centimeter by 20 centimeter square of green plastic with this movement sitting on it, or they're casing up, or whatever they're doing. Um, you know, they're, they're not good sales people in general. Um, so that was, you know, I, I, as I said, I keep talking about this this weird weird profile I have. Is um, I've done a few things like that where it's, yeah, it wasn't very typical, um, but it was obviously an awesome experience. And when I say you know the average price was 250, there was a lot of people pieces quite a bit higher than that we sold um, and I had I always had pieces in the shop which were worth over a million dollars and it wasn't because they were all diamond set it was just because they were rare and you know quite, quite cool pieces um, yeah so that was that was a great Did you experience. have any any disappointments in, in terms of moving away from the work that you'd done and the work you'd spent a lot of time studying and, and learning to move into a, a sales uh, position, um, did you feel like you were you were not letting I did a little. those things, yeah. to, not squandering those skills, but did you feel like you were maybe losing something by not being on on the tools all the time? I know what you mean, um, and I've often I often thought about it at the time and and since obviously, but um, I really missed when I was on the tools. I actually missed the the personal the contact side of things um, yeah. fr- from being in sales before. Um, so no, I, I, my need to interact with people outweighed my need to uh, stay current and, and and to be on the tools. I mean, I can still you know do do basic basic operations, but um, no, I, I it's, it's not, sometimes I think it'd be nice just to be able to have a nice little workshop overlooking the Valley du Jour with snow and stuff and nice little forest and just do my thing, um, which was a choice you know I had to make back then. But um, I was always more drawn to the to the personal contact side of things basically which was it's hard to get anywhere else with such a variety um outside of sales or you know a commercial role basically it's something i I kind of struggle with or i did struggle with when i got into the industry being in customer facing roles prior to that and then suddenly 
that's you're just working on what's in front of you and there's people you you're working kind of two feet away from them you don't speak to them all day or you give them a nod or something um it it and i guess that's where my interactions with the watch community really helped that because yes first and foremost i'm in love with watches um Mm -hmm. i want to know how they work but it's the the watches in their entirety so i can totally understand why you would be more than happy to to go and do something different within the same industry because it's just like another yes. string to your bow as they say it exactly. can only yeah, yeah. enrich your passion for it all the more and yeah the getting that interaction with the the, the customers and the, the end users it's a reason i've considered yeah doing something and like volunteering or doing well, part-time work in the weekend yeah with a um, customer facing thing to get part of that yes. passion out because it, well it's nice to share it you know it's nice to share yeah. it as well you, you, you pick up all this information and there's this massive well you know experience relatively to some people um and it's nice to be able to share and you can always sit down and talk technical with people you know you, you can go right into the nitty-gritty you can get the you can get i always had a textbook within in, in the boutique um and you know, I always it was people appreciated that you could you could really get technical for the guys that knew technical and the guys that didn't. Well, we could sort of dumb it down a little bit, so to speak. Um, but I, I, yeah, it's that transmission of, I guess it's like training. I like I like I like used to love training younger guys or you know guys who come after me, um, telling them how to do stuff because it's uh, and it's why I've done little tiny you know, evenings at courses and stuff and taught people about different movements, just basic stuff like jewels and whatever else. Um, it's 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 that transfer it's transfer of um knowledge really knowledge transfer and and that's in a customer situation it's, it's perfect it's brilliant they, they, they really appreciate it uh, they become good friends i mean ironic i mean there was out of all of the high net worth individuals that i that I dealt with at at richard mill there were very few of them who were, were tossers actually um they were actually you know there's and a lot of them become really good friends good contacts long-term contacts and friends um no it was was great experience basically okay I, I guess it's that again kind of marrying of passion and and skill and if you have a little even a little bit of both in the industry you're working in i think it makes you yeah. a very kind of i don't want to say dangerous individual but i feel like you can then do a lot of things because you've got that driving yeah. force you've got that that knowledge yeah it, yeah it, it means you can do so many, so many things. And if you're doing anything again with some form of passion behind it, it yes. makes working not really work, no, which is probably exactly again why yeah. I'm doing a podcast at 20 to nine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at oh, 29 your time. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, exactly. Definitely. Yeah. One, one so, thing um, you've, you did a, a review on the website and it's not up yet, but it's a review mm-hmm. on your, speak marin piccadilly and i think yeah i've mentioned that previous podcast as well and people need to check out when it when it goes up it's probably going to be up i think within the next week um i put put up the other one i've just fixed all your spelling mistakes in the last one okay (laughs) i mean if you want i can go back take them out and then highlight the text so good yeah exactly yeah i thought so um but the review on the 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 speak marin watch um which again, I saw a picture of that watch um, before I got to know you right. uh, because you let you let someone borrow it 
um, for a week when I when I this is obviously when I started to, to hear all about you. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about your time, your short time uh, over? Yeah. Over okay. There? Um, very short time because I mean I again once I started at eight, and that's the thing with the whole watchmaking thing over there is. I was keen to go and talk to all these watchmakers and, and, you know, I was just some guy who liked watches at the start. And then I got a job with AP and then I become basically a training AP watchmaker. And it, you, you, you jump up quite a few status notches. Um, you know, you work for AP, you could pass yourself up as a watchmaker really because I was trained to be one, not that I told people I was a watchmaker, but, and then I started knocking on in, independent watchmakers doors and say, look, I'm working for them. You know, can I come and chat? Yeah. And then they were quite approachable, a lot of the independents. Now I went to Philip Dufour's, you know, workshop and wandered around and we spent hours with him um, and different guys like that. And, and again, it's going back to the passion thing during the holidays, which is a big period of four weeks in the middle of the year in summertime in July, August, where they actually shut down the whole manufacture, basically. Uh, they keep a skeleton staff, but they have, you have basically these enforced holidays, which is brilliant. Um, usually people go down to the beach, go down South or you know, Italy, wherever. Um, but I had a bit of spare time and I thought, okay, I'm going to, do a do a do some work experience with a with a independent watchmaker by hook or by crook. I wanted to do it, so I rang a bunch of guys, and one of them was Peter. Um, and I'd met him before at Baselworld, but I hadn't really, you know, again, he didn't know who I was. It was, um, but he said, "Yeah, I've got you can come and work for me for a week." Um, so I did that, and um, I, I always always liked the look of his watches, really classic British um, watches look, blued hands, enamel dials, and so I went there and yeah, basically I had to, um, or job he gave me a so-called job was to, to, to strip down and rebuild um, to, to Piccadilly watches, basic watches, but they were enamel dials. So it was a bit scary as far as, um, you know, tightening up the feet of a dial of enamel dial. It's easy to crack the dials basically. Um, and so he gave me that. And, and during that time, obviously I'm, I'm talking with a guy every day. Um, he had a young guy he wanted to train up, so I, I shared a lot of the stuff that I'd done with my Piguet. I think by then I was probably in my, you know, I was well into the second year, I believe. Um, I wasn't like a total green, total totally green guy anyway. I'd done actual physical watchmaking on an actual watch movement, so I sort of knew what was what. Um, so, yeah, I had spent a week with him, and I stripped down two watches, um, cleaned them all up, did, did little services, oil them, and then put them all back together, did some testing, and... Um, did a bit of polishing of the case as well. I pretty scratched around. One was his wife's uh, gold, solid gold one. Um, polished them up and basically got them back to new looking um, before giving them back to whoever was had been wearing them, basically. Great watches. But the, the obviously the big advantage for me was talking to this guy. He was, he was um, you know, there's the superstars in watchmaking. I, he was probably, you know, getting there to that sort of point where he was doing, had his own brand going really well. And so it was good to get, to see his side of the industry and get his take on big brands and get his take on what movements should be like. Cause he was developing his own movement at that time. Um, previously he'd used ETA movements or modified ETAs. So it was, that was great. It was, I, I, I kind of, um, I've never really uh, having talked to a few independent watchmakers, I've never really been that interested in doing my own brand um, for, for a number of reasons. I'm just not, I don't, I, these guys are really driven. They're really, really driven guys. And it's not more than just kicking out, starting a Kickstarter campaign, it's, it's really to do a proper independent watch. You have to be really invested personally. Uh, I don't know. It's, I just don't have time for that. I'm too old for that kind of stuff. Um, so, um, but it was nice to get his point of view on a lot of different things. Um, 
Peter Spickmarin is um, he's a, he, he likes looking at things in a very holistic way, so that he likes to get the whole the whole package looking great and and working great. Um, does some great stuff, and he yeah he he had really nice stuff up until he left the company basically, which I, I thought was a pity. Um, but I'd already I already had my sights set on getting a Spickmarin. Eventually, one day I couldn't afford it then, obviously, but a few years later, chance come up, and now I'm the it's it's a keeper my my speak baron it's it's a it's a beautiful watch in, in my eyes anyway it's um it's quite, quite a special taste. thing to to have gone and and worked there for a short period and exactly and yeah had that personal connection yeah um yeah. it's something that very few people in in the world get to experience something like that across over any kind of product not necessarily even watchmaking that's yeah, a true. very unique thing to to be able to do um while we're on the subject of it, ETA movements, that's something that people talk about a lot and talk about the value of ETA movements. And I'm not going to pay this amount of money. I'm not going to buy a, a Bremont when it's got yeah. an ETA movement in it. And yep. it's, yeah, it's something that continuously comes up, kind of ETA versus in-house. Um, do you want to give your take on on your, your kind of thoughts on is one better than than the other, or and then I'll I'll kind of weigh in. I can. I, how that. much? How, how long have we been going for? Because it's um it's again each 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 subject's a bit of a can of worms. I mean, um, yeah. I didn't take tra- get track of when we started, but um yeah I'm ETA. Uh, I love ETA. I love ETA movements. They're again obviously most watch mags they, they kick off doing ETA movements um and. For me, the value for money thing is is, is long term, strategic. You have to, you know, you, you want to watch. That's why I prefer my my go to Pelagos. Um, Tudor Pelagos has the ETA. I've got a couple of them actually. Um, it, it's something which for me is will always be able to fix by any competent watchmaker. Um, whereas an in house movement, if you haven't got the you know what it's like, haven't got the tools or the pausage, the 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 the, the pausage, what do they call that in English? The, the, what you're sitting in the movement on and all the different the, the different tools yeah, you know yeah. you, you won't not in any old any old watchmaker can work on i'm not saying any old watchmaker but you know there's good watchmakers who can work on pretty much any eta movement or even a 7750 chrono whatever um once you have that experience you know anyone can fix it basically and it's it's not it's not a i don't think it's a, it's a negative thing um in-house movements unless they're really high-end in-house i think they're uh, personally i think they're overrated i i would much much prefer to have in a lot of cases, an ETA-based movement. It, because let's face it, even an ETA-based based movement or, or a heavily modified ETA, it's still the same gear train often, um, or, yeah. or the same same you know principle um, that doesn't change. So I'm I'm all for, I, I love ETA movements. Um, I, I I met old Nicholas Hayek, the old guy, before he died, and I've met the young guy. I think they're they're very strong personalities, and you like them or hate them, but. Um, They've done some pretty brilliant stuff when it comes to the ETAs, and you, you can't you can't fault the fact that they're that they're, they're tractor movements. You know, there's old this old Tudor here, and I've got an old older Tudors which have been ticking away for 50 years with an ETA movement, um, and they're still using pretty much the same movements. You know, it, it's brilliant. I think it's 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 a real it's a real asset. It's a historical asset. You know, it's a heritage thing. Um, when I think brands people use. forget forget about that, and they forget yeah. that there was a reason that exactly. all the major brands in the world were using mm-hmm. ETA movements. Exactly. And it, yeah. Yeah. they were 
picking them up because they were reliable. It was a great yeah. product and they could put it in their mm-hmm. high-end watches. And yeah. I guess when I got into watchmaking, um, coming from an enthusiast uh, point of view and coming into the industry, I had this in my head that, oh, in-house. And like I'd heard it. I didn't know the kind of fully the reasons behind it, but I'd heard people say in-house is better, in-house is better. Yeah, of course. You hear that all the but time. But then yeah, when online, you think yeah. about it, it's like, do you want something that's kind of tried and true and has years and years of, of experience and it has gradually had tweaks and improvements over the years? Or do you want to have something that a company's rushing to get out to market because they've got this exactly. pressure yeah. from the public to actually yep. produce something f- with this kind of idea of value in mind. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay that money because mm-hmm. they're not making their own, their own movement. And I mean, I think yeah. as well, lots of people, lots of the companies who come out with in-house movements, they're not making or they're not uh, designing the movements themselves in a lot of the cases anyway someone else is basically coming up with the idea for exactly. the movement and they're then it's buying the, or whatever yeah. yeah they're buying the rights yeah yeah, yeah. They, they come out with one yeah it's one new movement and then they add all the other parts onto it and yeah they've got there's a company someplace that makes the designs the movement and they buy the rights to that and this one company yeah, just sure. makes movements for designs movements for lots of different companies i think people have lost track of that and it was certainly a shock to me when i started working with watchmakers and i would ask their thoughts on it and mm-hmm. they would all say if i had to start my own brand i would use eta movements yeah of course and it's just it's, I think it's, a, it's, it's becoming a little difficult for them now to get eta movements sometimes I yeah think. but but uh absolutely from a from a sourcing point of point just from logistics just just a, not even just a logical point of view why would you why would you spend 20 years i mean this is the reason rolex is so good they spend 20 years if they bring out a new movement that that, that new movement they did for the sky dweller for example or whatever it's called sky dweller yeah um, yeah, yeah. They, they would have spent 20 years with that movement just on r and d you know yeah. they have the time and the foresight and the strategy to be able and, and the money to be able to do that you know there's probably 20 guys working on that movement for for, for the for the for this 10 years before they brought it out 20 years before they bought it, there would have been a guy done doing that movement. There would have been a little team doing that movement for 20 years before they bought it out. This is this is a pretty it's a pretty big investment. Um, I mean, I'm just making up the figures. You know, a long time anyway. Um, and I know, for example, when I started, there was a movement which was bought out in a in an entry level watch somewhere I worked. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to say where, but it was a pretty terrible movement. Uh, it was um, there was a lot of a lot of bugs basically in the first few few years of of that movement um, and a high-end, high-end, you know, high-end brand um, that I was quite, you know, I saw a lot of and that, that it was hopeless. It was really, really bad. Um, and you get it, you know, it just, they're not as robust. They just don't have the tractor qualities um, of, of an ETA movement. And there's watchmakers who, there's still watchmakers who argue both ways. Some, some, I think it's, it's still pretty personal. Some people like something that's, in-house but you have to have it has to have a proper period of r&d put into it yeah. any 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 new movement it's like but any anytime i've heard watchmakers argue for the in-house side of things it's always been with a particular caliber that has exactly and there are, stood the test yeah. of time and yep. it's normally kind of rolex versus mm-hmm. yeah yep. the the omega movement or the, the their kind yep. of yep. 
uh, ETA-based uh, movement. And they've yeah. both been around for so long. They've had so many tweaks over, over the years. And yep. that's yep. kind of the only argument in, in my mind is yep. one yeah. incredibly established movement versus another yeah. incredibly established movement, whether it's in-house or not shouldn't really shouldn't really come into it um and i don't know i get the feeling that a lot of movements now the in-house movements um i don't know it feels like the the public are doing the testing part of it Um, (laughs) exactly yeah and people are just so they just want to pump the stuff out get get it out there on people's risk because everyone's begging for it and it's more difficult to get eta movements now um and yeah that customer they're the ones that have to do the actual the testing of it which which seems a bit backwards yeah, to me it's, it's not it's not great yeah um yeah i, I agree i agree I, I'm, i've always been an eta fan I, I i guess you know any watchmaker will usually will in most places will start off pulling pulling, pulling apart and putting back together eta movements you know um and it's, it's become so familiar that it just becomes a no but what, what would you why would you want to or, or risk having something which may break down or it just hasn't you know the the, the the wearing in periods of these these movements is uh, it can be quite a while sometimes you know the um running in basically so it's you know I, I i keep going back to eta and but i'm you know some people are more pragmatic they just want something that's robust doesn't have to look beautiful um and some people just like the aesthetic some people like something that looks beautiful looks through it through through a sapphire case back end and um you know it's that's what's good about watchmaking all, we all love different things basically so it's very true massive variety yeah okay so you after richard meal are we what, sick we're still going are we because yeah, I just, yeah. i've skipped over stuff because i'll, I'll talk as well I know, about, we're all over the place but that's how i like it well I've, but I'll, i think i've put for a future thing i can go a bit i'll drill down a bit into the training i did at ap then while i was at richard meal i did also a uh federal certificate which is like a degree course in watchmaking sales um like um, as as a part-time course, same time as I was at Richard Mill, but then anyway, I we'll go into that later. I did um, I was at Richard Mill for five years. They decided to do a massive um, refurbishment of of my boutique and the one next door, basically, who are owned by the same people. So, and at the very similar time, or very soon afterwards, they were opening another big Richard Mill boutique, the, the proper the which became the flagship for Geneva in the city itself in on the, the Rue de Rhone, which is the main watch street. Um, so the strategies changed a bit. Uh, the management had changed a bit. I was fed up a little bit, to be honest, with um, some of the management. And I mean, people thought I was nuts leaving Richard Mill. Um, but they sort of, I mean, it was, wasn't, I'd, I'd actually changed contracts again. I'd gone back to work for AP for a while and it was uh, getting a bit messy. And that was the same time as um, in about 2014, I guess, um, or the early part of 2015. I would have been January 15. January is traditionally the coldest, or it's the coldest month in Europe usually. Uh, there's lots of snow about, and um, January, February can be very miserable. And I was walking down the main, one of the main streets in, in Geneva, heading to work, thinking, what, what, what am I doing? I was, it was, it was. Um, it was sort of snowing, but not this lovely little snowflake snow you see on the Christmas Carol clips. It was like sleet coming in at about 90 degrees in <laughs> your like eyes. Sounds like Scotland. Exactly. Summer. Well, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
I had my beanie on. I've got my, I've got, I had my, I had Daymar, I had like long undies on basically. And I had a suit and then I had um, a jumper and then I had an overcoat, like a, like a, a cashmere overcoat and the scarf and the bean, the gloves, the whole thing. My R.M. Williams boots sloshing through the mud, uh, you know, through dirty brown snow, thinking this is not much fun. Um, you know, I, I'm from, I'm from um, Australia. I was trying to think of a, a nice, uh, you know, uh, not um, a privileged country or, 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 you know, the promised land. Australia, everyone, everyone waffles on about how awesome Australia is. And here I am going, you know, tr- trudging through the snow, um, going to work and, and, and getting freezing cold. So in this day and age, you shouldn't have to get cold going to going to work, I don't think. And because I used to take, um, I used to drive 12 minutes to be, to be, to be precise to, to this train station, then catch a 45 minute train, a fast train, and the trains in Switzerland are beautifully awesome. And you could read, read the paper, have a coffee and, um, and then walk another, I don't know, 10 minutes down to the, to the boutique, to the Kempinski hotel, which is the main hotel, a big hotel in Switzerland. So yeah, it just was sort of a turning point. I thought this is, this is, this is not much fun. Um, you know, I'd been in Switzerland by then for that last stint. It was almost 18 years. I, altogether, it was about 20 years. Um, and so I started talking to my wife and they're thinking, okay, well, you know, the kids are, by then they were, I mean, obviously they grew up speaking French and I thought well, we wanted to get them into the, you know, show them the Aussie lifestyle, basically. We sort of, maybe we should test and go back and see what's, see what's happening in Australia and, um, Look, look for opportunities over there and one thing led to another and then we yeah with this strategy change and the boutique changing and everything it was just the right moment to, to to go basically um and so yeah i left there in um oh sorry and at the same time a guy in perth happened to be looking for a, someone to manage a shop here a watch shop and do some distribution for him and stuff so it was kind of um again it was, it was the timing was right um so we decided to pack our bags and come over here we'd we'd lived in uh in sydney a couple of years didn't appeal to us the big town and no disrespect to melbourne but the climate there was pretty much you know it wasn't um wasn't what we were after so we'd both my wife and i both been to perth for a quick trip and we said okay let's, let's if something comes up in perth we'll give that a whirl and, and it did so this is where we are <laughs> does that make sense so your, your wife didn't have any issues going back to Australia. My poor long-suffering wife. She she she, she actually she she's following me all over the place. Um, but she loves the heat and loves it. I know. The, I was gonna say a bit because she you said she's from Switzerland, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. she's not a cold weather person. Um, and yeah. as beautiful as it is, and the scenery is fantastic, and the snow is great, and it's like, but but the, for a fair portion of the year, okay, when it's nice, crisp winter's day. If it's if it's two degrees or, or minus five and it, and it suns out and it's there's snow it's a beautiful place don't get me wrong and um and we enjoyed that and we, we made the best of all the the skiing and everything else snowboarding we we're into big time for years um but you know that for a fair portion of the year you've got a summer which is probably you know anywhere from i don't know um six weeks to 12 weeks long and that's it um a proper summer and yeah, yeah that, that during that time everyone just goes nuts and you, that's why they have a four-week holiday in the middle of middle of summer because it's like our christmas holidays but they they really profit from uh, as they say in french that they, they go away you know they go south um they they spend all day at the lake you're swimming every day in summer in switzerland um it, it's it's nuts it's 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 quite different 
but that because people know they have such a short window to really enjoy themselves, they they travel, they 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 do all the the the, the summer stuff. Um, they just go nuts about it. And they really they really do it um, solid for, for for a few weeks. Really. Yeah, you've got uh, you've got to make the most of it. Same yeah, in, in, most in Scotland during the yeah, winter summer. I've been to Scotland a lot for previous jobs, and I used to love the place. But my goodness, um, if it was a sunny day, it was 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 brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah all the guys are walking down the street with their tops off because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, 10 degrees. Yeah. So you got you got to make the most of these moments yeah, when yeah. you get. That's for sure. Yep. And that's what we wanted to, we, we'd done that, but we wanted to really get back to where we could just spend, you know, three quarters of the year in a t-shirt rather than, rather than three weeks. Um, so it was oh, a choice we made. Um, again, it was a lot of a different, a lot of different factors, but the timing was just seemed to be right. So we thought we'll get back to Perth. And, um, so that's, that's what we did. And yeah, I haven't regretted it at all. And my wife loves it here. You know, she, um, was kind of ironic because we, if, if if my wife had known how big a how big a, a paperwork thing it was, a b- b- bureaucratic nightmare to get her visa, for example, she probably wouldn't have done it. It was just it's just a, it was unbelievable. Um, even having had permanent residency um, 20 years before, it was as if she'd never been here. She was a total alien. I had to prove again that I, she wasn't a male order bride and all sorts of stuff. Wow. It, was, it was nuts, and we had to pay thousands and thousands and thousands. It was it wasn't um it wasn't a wasn't a small deal. Um, so we'd sort of embarked on it, not knowing how big a deal it was actually. Um, and now my wife's not keen to move again because it was such a, such a, um, challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like you said earlier, Australia is such a, yeah. I think anyone who's been to Australia is normally wants to stay forever and ever and ever. They do. Yeah. Um, but then people here, if you've lived in Switzerland, people, people love Switzerland. They see all the postcards and stuff and they think this is, why, why would you leave Switzerland? It's, 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 it's you know, it's paradise. But cold, I think it's though. nice. It is cold, yeah. but it's nice to be able to dabble in the two a little bit. And that's my, my, you know, the whole, yeah, my, my ideal situation would be able to spend, oh, I spend a month there a year almost now anyway, but spend a bit more time there, especially in the summertime um, when the weather here is not so great. And yeah, do, do a bit of both. And when I know, you know it's a privilege to be able to do that. I've been back every year and my poor wife hasn't in the last couple of years, but we're all going back in a, in a couple of months' time, and we'll see the shows, watch shows, and catch up with some people. And yeah, we're trying to do that a bit more regularly, basically. Okay, so tell tell the people what you're up to now. What's what's happening? In the, I know you, you touched still on it. Keep going. Are you sure? Yeah. We've um well, yeah, I I, I um I went out on my own here what a bit over a year ago, um, and decided to. Uh, independent watchmaking is what I, I really love. Uh, I like vintage watches or old watches, um, old watches as well. But uh, the big brands don't interest you as much. Um, the, the big high street, or as I call high street brands or popular brands. Having said that, it's ironic. I know I'm a, I'm a Tudor tragic. I've got some old Tudors, but I've got some new ones as well, some modern Tudors. Um, but again, it gets back to the ETA thing. I, I'd always prefer an ETA movement Tudor. Um, I don't know how that's sad that in Australia, Tudor. Tudor, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but uh, the independents is the guys like Peter Speak Marine and all the guys that I've got to know over the years over there uh, with uh, ten years of solid networking over there. Um, it, it's, it's paid off as far as knowing personally a lot of big independent uh, watchmakers. But 
I, I can't really just kick off selling those because there's not a big enough market here. It's really an education thing first. Um, so I've gone for some independent brands. I bring in at the moment four little brands, smaller brands, three of which are really, really small brands, but they're not they're not a Kickstarter made, made in China type watches. Most of them are um, they're, they're one or two man operations um, doing beautiful stuff based in Switzerland. Um, I don't know where they come from, the towns they come from, where, where the guys are doing them where they get the different parts made up, the dials and everything else. Um, so there's three little brands that I bring in. Uh, one is Landy Blue, which is a beautiful little brand. I met the guys years ago at Basel. You can read all this on the website, genevablue.com.au. If you put it in yeah, genevablue.com, get, get, get the AU, otherwise you'd be buying blue wine um, from Geneva. But, the, yeah, these um, I had to really start off at, at a reasonable level. So the brands I do, Geneva Blue, uh, L'Aventure, Eza, and Squale, Squale are the only ones that are, they're a, bit, they're a bit more industrial and a bit more, you know, they're sort of probably not quite um, the niche independent brand that I, you know, is my ideal brand, but they're, 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 they're a good watch as well. They're a solid little watch. But um, Lani Blue is a L'Aventure, they're, they're tiny brands. I know the guys who started the brands, uh, they're doing nice stuff. They do the movements or the ETA movements, all of them. Uh, so again, they're using the tried and true movements. I bring those in, small numbers of them. You know, sometimes I only have two or three of a, of a brand in stock. Um, but I, again, it's it's an investment. I can't really just stock everything at once at, at the start. Anyway, I will be looking at other brands to bring in as well. Uh, Basel World this year, or what's left of it. Um, I'll be talking to a few little brands, and I'm just talking to them at the moment about bring some brands in again, small brands, which um, aren't really present on this in the Australian market. I do a few pre-owned watches as well. Um, my wife sort of looked at me a while back and said, well, 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 you're supposed to be trading here. You're just, you're just collecting. That's all you're doing. Um, so <laughs> she, she said, maybe we, should, maybe we should try and get rid of a few of these. So I've, I've put a few on the, and, and I've also got some consignment pieces for mates and stuff. And I just thought to watch today for somebody else. It's, um, which had been on the side. I've got, a, I don't know, maybe a dozen watches. There's not many. I need to grow that as far as pre-owned goes. Um, I do straps. Straps, I, I get Halloween straps made up. Um, they're only I've spe- specialised just in Halloween, which is a family tannery in Chicago, and they do the leather. They're famous in America. They do their NFL balls and all this, all this stuff. Um, but they're sporting goods. They're, they're quite well-known in boots and everything else, high-end leather. Um, and I get all of my straps made up by uh, an artisanal guy who makes straps for some big brands or some nice brands, um, but he makes it to my specifications with these hides from Chicago. Um, so it's a small range of straps. Again, on my website, I'm, I'm growing that very slowly. I've got another model coming up pretty soon. Um, but again, it, it's bit by bit because it's uh, most of it's a, a big investment. I also sell tools, Bergeon tools. Um, the I, know, CEO. I was having a look at your stuff when you posted a few things. Yeah. Like, oh, God, I wish I had some nice stuff. I know. Like it, it's, it's, it's not cheap, but uh, the quality is definitely there. And people, some watchmakers whinge about the price of the Bergeon. Um, it's, for most of it, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, and I, I really, I have just stuck to some pretty basic stuff. I can get anything from the Bergeon catalog. Um, and up until like a few weeks ago, the CEO of Bergeon was a good mate of mine, but he just left and started his own company, the Peanut. So I have to... um. I still have a good relationship with them, and one of the main sales guys uh, is a really good friend as well. So I, was, I had pretty, you know, I had a, like a 
privileged channel there as well for getting Bergeon tools at really, really reasonable prices, um, enough to, to make a tiny margin selling them on anyway. And what else is there? I'm, I have, there's no books on there yet, but I will be selling books, watch books. Um, so that's sort of in the pipeline. And also, um, what one, our oh, clocks. I had a little menu for clocks. I've sold a couple of clocks and I've got a couple of more to go in there, basically. War clocks. Um, I'm not going to go into mantle clocks and stuff, but just the occasional um, clocks which, which come up, mostly brand clocks, you know, I had some Zeniths and uh, AP clocks and stuff like that, which people are mad about. Um, so basically you're into anything watch related. It's kind of a shotgun want, approach. Yeah, yeah. To see what sticks. But you want to be, yeah, you're, it's obviously the industry you want to be in. Oh, and absolutely. Yes. Working yes. And, and be involved in. As for yeah. the, the smaller brands, I'm, I mean, I know a couple of guys who are, are, are into them. I'm more like a vintage watch person, but you obviously being in the industry, I still pick up little bits here and there and being an enthusiast, I kind of pick up bits here and there. What would you say are the kind of main selling points for people getting into the smaller kind of brands? It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like Anthony was talking about on that previous one of your podcasts recently about knowing the guys behind the brand. Um, I have a Haybring jumping second as well, the same as his. And pretty much, um, well, it's not actually exactly the same. It's not the sector dial. It's not that limited series, but it's quite a small production, a Haybring watch. I've met Richard and Maria years back. Um, I've been, you know, keeping contact with them. They're, they're great people, as he says, and fantastic. They'll do anything. They'll bend over backwards. And that's the whole attraction of these little brands is knowing the guys. And again, I'm repeating myself. I'm banging on. I, I put this in the profile on my website about each brand, knowing the people behind the brand that's the important thing you, you can you can send them a message um or give them a call if you know them if you speak french most of the time um you know and, and they'll respond and, and you've got this contact with them the guy that put the watch together um mm. or at the worst case scenario squale i guess it's the only one where i i don't know the actual guys making the watches but i know the family that owns it and deals with the watchmakers so and, you know, it's the next best thing, basically. But um, the three little smaller brands, I know personally, and I've known them since before their brands, um, the guys putting the watches together, making, building the watches, the guys who designed the watches, uh, the guys who have trained themselves how to do engraving and enameling and, and watch, watchmaking half the time. You know, there's some really, really skilled people uh, in Switzerland. And uh, it's not uncommon to find a multi-talented individual um, who's, you know, who's, they've got um, several disciplines. They've taught themselves, you know, they're, they're, they're qualified engineers and they've gone through a watchmaking course and then they've done business and then they've done, they've done what engraving or taught themselves, you know. Um, there's some really, it's because the, the culture over there is so, so focused and there's so much business in the watch, the watchmaking business is so big. Um, all the resources around them, people know everyone who's doing something. Um, whatever they want to do, whatever you want to teach yourself, you can find someone who will, who will either teach you or there's, you know, the, the resources is, is just massive. And these people are, there's just so many multi-skilled people. Um, you know, people like, sorry, I'm just, I'm waffling. Here you go. I'm waffling. Um, but Roman Gortier, Roman Gortier ran a machine shop and he's a machinist. That's what he is. That's what he, he wasn't really a watchmaker. He was a machinist. And you can see that coming out on his watches for the way that they're constructed and the, and the, and the dials and everything else. Um, but it's it's a different it's a, it's a different trade it's it's a different um, qualification not qualification but different skill to be a machinist a, a brilliant machinist and a watchmaker uh, and yeah. to have those two combined 
it, it's it's unbelievable. You know, and then you'll see watches from Philip Dufour or um, the guy from the Isle of Wight, whatever his name is, Smith. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're more traditional watch-making watches. Uh, and there's everything in between. There's the Vianney Hells are doing crazy stuff, you know, independent watchmaker. So, yeah, it, it's – it's. I like the variety. I love the variety. But um, – I think some, the variety is a, a big selling point, I guess, mm, coming at it yeah. from a purely enthusiast uh, kind of point of view. Yeah. I guess it's the the fear of the unknown. If I'm being perfectly honest, that's probably what would get me. Even when I've looked at um, Anne Ordain, I'm not sure if you know about them. Mm-hmm. They're a little yeah, yeah. Scottish yeah. Um, yeah. company. They're doing Scottish some. Company. Yeah, no, yeah. Scottish, I'm just saying that to hassle you. I'd listen. Why do you think I left Scotland? I'm an Australian. I I was one of the dodgy <laughs> okay. people that I had to leave. Mm-hmm. But there's there's yeah. I guess with this smaller. Uh, number i guess it's yeah. different when it's when it's a company that's been around for a long time 100 years or 200 years yes. whatever and they're producing small quantities you'd think okay they've been around for this number of years they've been producing small quantities all that length of time okay yes. i can i can get behind that the smaller brands who i mean and it might feel like they've just come about recently but they might still be five or ten years old mm, but there is yeah, still just that yeah. kind of thing where you think oh yeah there like... is which is yeah that's why it's invaluable if you're in europe at least you know to go to the shows and stuff and you meet these people and you might to meet them two or three or four or five times and you have drinks with them and you go out and, and you really get to know the people you know that nothing to do with watches just the people um yeah that's why for me it's, it's, a, it's a massive plus but but it's also um you know, usually a, a young company, they'll, they'll bend over backwards for service. Even if something goes wrong, well, you know, they'll, they'll be there. They're there for you. They'll, they'll fix yeah. it. I mean, their, their whole reputation is on the line. Um, so, well, that was the uh, thing about uh, Habring that when Anthony was talking yes. about, when he was yeah. saying, we don't really have a warranty. It's yeah. just yeah, yeah, if yeah. we can fix exactly. it, then, brilliant. I mean, yeah. that's add that on to the... The, the actual kind of personal connection to the yes. to the brand and the the yep. owners and the watchmakers, yep. that is a a big thing. And it, and when they're dealing a lot of the time directly with the the customers, certainly on a more personal basis, yep. it's a real driving force Absolutely. to provide good customer service yeah. when there's not yeah. there's not a call center in the way there's mm-hmm. not a customer service person exactly. and, a, and a receptionist. Well, a yeah, yeah. If they call you up, like Anthony said, Richard Habring or his wife answers the phone, mm-hmm. like you, you're going to want to be providing great service and um, a good quality product because otherwise, basically, you're you'd, you'd pro- probably be over the whole watchmaking thing pretty quickly if you're just speaking to disgruntled customers yeah. on the phone twenty four seven. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's important for people to kind of think about. Think about that. I guess. You, you're kind of weighing up all these things the pros and cons with any purchase you make but i think a lot of the kind of uh herd mentality when okay other people are buying this so it's going to be okay for me to buy something like that yeah that's true whether it takes the risk out of it or not yes it feels like you're taking more of the risk out. it does yeah i know yeah i can see that point of view definitely um i don't know after having met a lot of independence and stuff it's just it seems to be more of a personal thing it's more about you know it's getting back to um i'm from the i'm from the bush you know it's just it's more of a more of a really personal thing where there's no nonsense um there's a lot less marketing there's a lot less marketing bs there's a lot less um 
a lot less fluff in between the watchmaker and yourself and you can have that real a proper connection basically i mean don't get me wrong there's small brands who don't do a good job of it but they soon get customer service they yeah. soon yeah exactly they have to often it's just a language thing gets in the way sometimes because a lot of these guys you know they've concentrated their whole lives on watchmaking and whatever else not not learning english um so and i've found a lot of british guys and um a few aussies kiwis but a lot of british obviously being over there that they've end up they they sort of ingrain themselves within a brand or have that they create a role for themselves within a brand to be the spokesperson because they can deal with 90 percent of the world market um and they speak english and they're, and they're not good at you know there's some great guys doing that um for different brands different small brands the guy working for um uh, Holman Gautier is a good good mate Stephen. um they, they, you know they, these they they're passionate about it they approach the brands they, they can sell it they can they can they can really open up the whole brand to, to a whole new clientele, basically, uh, make their customer service much better. And yeah, the little brands that are serious and that want to invest—that's what they're doing. They're always making sure they have someone that um, can communicate with their with their main clientele. So it's it's good. Um, but there's also that connection. The the thing that encourages me again is that people who have gone to the effort to actually start up their own brand, that has to come from a place of passion and a desire to make something absolutely um yep. that's that's special um yeah. unless you're mvmt or daniel wellington or something you just want to churn out <laughs> mass pro- mass yeah. produced stuff yeah i mean i assume a lot of these um you know I'm, I'm kind of guessing here probably but some of these brands it's it's a big risk they're taking actually starting up a brand that can't be yeah, absolutely. cheap to to um to start up something like that so they, they want to make it work it's, they've got it's to make definitely it, a it's, passion project I it's would a massive to... personal investment as i was saying before it's it's it, they've really invested you have to be driven that's what you have to be driven and these guys are driven they spend 20 hours a day uh this is their baby and this is why they're, they're really putting it across and that's why that's what comes across to the customer as well that's why it's so so attractive you, you you've got this guy's he's, he's put his heart and soul into a into a what even if he's not done them even if it's an ETA movement, you know, he's, he's pulled it apart. He's examined that movement. He's studied it for years. And he knows all about it inside out and, and to, to make sure it's right for his watch. Um, and these guys, they've put so much into it that you, you get that comes across. That comes across when you're buying a piece, you're buying a, you're buying a part of their a part of their whole history. You know, it's, it's brilliant if you've got small brands like that who can, again, it's like transmitting the the, the, the knowledge and their experience and their, their, whole, their whole journey. Of making the brands getting quite romantic here, aren't we? It's quite, it's quite. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's a, it's a real, it's a personal thing, which is, so you can you cannot get buying a Rolex. You know, I don't care what you say. You, you can't even get it. You you you've got a job getting that with an AP or a Patek, but it's only the little brands where you have that real connection with the the guys behind the brands, basically. Well, yeah. that's what always attracted me to to FP Jean yeah. was the fact that it's a living watchmaker. On mm-hmm. on the dial it says kind of made by and are yep. invented and made yes. by. He might yep. not make every watch individually himself, but he has sat yep. down and made the the yep. prototype for each of those watches. Yeah. Yep. And how can you compare that for the for the same amount of money for a mass yeah. produced piece when you right. can have something yeah. and the people who yeah when it's smaller brands you can ask for things. And like you said, they will bend over backwards to provide excellent customer service and to make it 
as special a, a purchase for you as as they possibly can and that's something that while the larger brands are trying to spread their net as far and wide as they can yes they're missing out on that personal connection with the the end users that these people can then start to go around and, and pick up and it might just be these it might just be picking up kind of scraps here and there in terms of the the, the revenue and the number of customers but if they can convert that and the more people who are open to having something or want to have something that not everyone else has got i mean it has to come to a head at some point the whole ticking off boxes with whatever the the most hyped up watches at the time i think at some point people are it's like when you go to school and you always want the same sneakers or trainers or whatever yeah, it is everyone else got yeah. you're so desperate to be oh, yeah, of course. part of part of the gang yeah. and then you leave school and you find your own way in life and then you're like oh fuck everyone i'm just going to do my own exactly. thing <laughs> i don't I, give a shit so, what anyone thinks yes and more that's so when these you days become with, a uh, person social media and stuff just gets people craving after stuff they don't want really deep down it's nuts um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it today is just getting your watch to please other people. And I've always said when I've been selling watches, which didn't make me a really good salesman, I was always saying, you know, other people's opinions are overrated, especially guys like me who are trying to sell you something and, and you know, brands who have uh, special deals. And, you know, this guy's getting the salesman, he's getting a bonus on, on something he sells or there's a promotion. Why is he going to sell you something else or something that you really should be buying? You know, it's yeah. other people's opinions are overrated. Get, get what speaks to you. And I used to say that when I was at Hardy Brothers upstairs, I was, you know, wherever I've been, even at, um, well, to be, when you're working for a single brand place, it, it's it's a bit different. But um, <laughs> when you've got a, we've got a whole choice of a, a Penelope or whatever that word is of brands, um, there's so much out there. People just need to do a bit of digging, um, you know, look at the watches, find the watches, find people who have them. That's what Fifth Rivers is great for. Little shout out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate the that. Reviews and everything else. You know, that's all part of the part of the that experience it's the discovery and the learning and the and then the you know the acquiring basically well that yeah that's what i'm enjoy- actually enjoying about this the, the site show again to the fifth wrist um since you did it already is learning you new, new things about watches but even i find yeah. when I'm, I'm i go and try and search out people to to review interesting watches but even i find it increasingly difficult to find new things and and watches that i thought in the past weren't incredibly common i'm now mm. seeing them over and over and over and yes. over again yeah and then it's great I, I love when people are are doing reviews and i had someone recently who reviewed a watch and then said actually i've got this other watch but i don't know if you'd be kind of interested in in um mm. And having it on this site, and I say, I'm saying, like, I want whatever you've got. Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah, more interesting, yeah, the better. Yeah. So it was a yes. uh, Romain Jerome. Um, oh, okay. I think it's called like a spacecraft or something. Really cool, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch. Yeah. yeah. Um, not too crazy price wise. I thought it was going to no. be a lot more, but yeah, there's there's I all these people kind of out so. there, kind of hiding in plain sight, if you like. Yes. And yes. It's it's almost like yeah, they think. Oh, no one wants to to see this thing, but they've obviously had such passion yeah, to yeah, go yeah. and get this kind of weird and wonderful. Watch. And there's always other people that want to see it. I mean, whatever it is, whatever watch it is, there's always people that want to see it or want to hear about it, basically. Which is, yeah, that's what the site's great for. 
Yep. All right. Where about? Where, where are you going? No, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm just checking how what time we're at. I wanted to make sure we were over two hours in total. So I think we're at. I get a split up by you. Two. No, no, no. There's a a guy on uh, on the Facebook group, and he was complaining and saying that the um the podcasts were too long. And he wanted them to be 20 minutes long, <laughs> and I said it took me 20 minutes to fix fix my drink. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I liked that about you the first time I watched one of your your videos, and I think you said something like. Yeah, some people have complained that the videos are too long. Well, don't listen to my video. Don't watch my video. Yeah, well, I mean, and I did want to keep them short at the start, but then, and I actually said I was going to, but then I, I reneged on that basically, and it's just, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's uh, um, different people have different periods of time available to listen to these things. I don't know. I've got to, I've got to get going soon anyway. But um, yeah, no, yeah, that's cool. No, I really appreciate the, the time. Yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to to Clarence and say I'm sorry. This one's slightly over 20 minutes long, but. <laughs> Hopefully you've had. Sorry, Clarence. What can you do? I mean, next um, time it's going to be worse. Than it. I can go off waffling. There's, there's a little, there's a, there's a bunch of side roads that have gone straight past on this little journey, um, which we can go into more detail later on. And there, and there, yeah, there's lots more stuff. But um, I guess if I'm looking forward to, to already, definitely go and check out uh, Rob's Instagram page, which is Geneva underscore Blue underscore, um, and yeah, otherwise you go on the was it the the wine website and yeah his website genevablue.com.au um yes. really appreciate you taking the time to have a, a chat no problem with us. at all no problem at all um, i'd love to have right. you on regularly maybe this has burnt you out after this one no maybe no no I'm, I'm all good podcasting can... isn't for me but you did go and buy that <laughs> microphone that i made you buy so you kind of have to i've, I've got to use it now yeah yeah um, i'm really pleased it. with it i'm going to put it up in my bedroom just to look at it it's quite cool but um <laughs> Yeah, no, we'll get some more use out of it. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been fantastic. No problem. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll, we'll catch you in the next one. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Fifth Wrist is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.